Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Michael Suarez. I'm the director of Rare Book School, and I'd like to welcome you to this, the third of our evening lectures in the Rare Book School summer schedule. I'd like to begin by thanking the Harrison Institute and the Albert and Shirley Small Special Collections for allowing us the use of this space this evening. And I'd also like to remember the Pine Tree Foundation of New York for their generous sponsorship. Edward Hirschman was graduated from Brown University with a double major in classics and linguistics. He proceeded to doctoral studies in linguistics at the University of Chicago. What does one do following higher studies in linguistics at such an august institution? Of course, one goes to work in the senior editorial offices at Playboy magazine. <laughs> following, <laughs> it, it's true. I did not make it up. Following that excursus into the world of publishing, <laughs> Ed Hurston returned to Chicago where he took his MBA. Today he's president of the Landhart Corporation and is widely recognized as ranking among the, among the most significant scholar collectors in America. His Chicagoiana collection is widely coveted by institutions all around the globe. It's a good thing that I did not know any of these things about Ed when I met him by chance in the Getty Museum in my first year as director of Rare Book School. We were at an exhibit of medieval and Renaissance manuscripts Ed was uh, accompanied by two women at this exhibition and um, we were in a little side room together and somebody asked a question about one of the items. And, and they all said, I don't know, do you know? I don't know, I wonder how we could find out. And I said, I'm sorry, I think I know the answer. <laughs> Typical professor. In any case, so then Ed said, well, who are you? And how could you possibly know this? And we, we realized that we grew up two miles from each other on Long Island and have become friends. The first time that I visited Ed Hirschland's collection, we spent seven hours looking at the items. And I was sorry to go. In 2002, this scholar collector was featured in this prominent Chicago newspaper. And this is what it says, in part. The article runs for four, four or five pages. An extraordinarily erudite and sophisticated man, he has served on the National Board of the Society of Architectural Historians and has been chairman of the Friends of the Field Museum. Discussing Hirschland's tenacity as a collector, the paper has this to say. Something clicked in Hirschland's imagination and he began spending more and more time trolling the racks of rare bookstores. Soon, it had become an obsession. It definitely did pick up steam, he says. I'm not sure it was perceptible. I'm not sure I remember it happening. Others remember it quite well, however. <laughs> Brad Jonas, the co-owner of Powell's Bookstore in Hyde Park, recalls that Hirschman, quote, was almost an annoying sort of customer at first <laughs> because he seemed so driven. But it was not before, long before Jonas was won over. I really got infected by how excited he was by his own material. Terence Tanner, who now counts Hirschland among his closest friends, had a similar experience. When I first met him, I thought he was a real pain in the ass, he says. But I have watched him become a truly great collector. He brings an enormous amount of intelligence and hard work 
which is what it takes. I mean, you can see it when you look at his books. Ladies and gentlemen, Edward Hirschling. Michael, it's really embarrassing. Thank, thank you very much. <laughs> totally undeserved, but thank you very much. And thanks for inviting me. Thanks to all of you. I really want to thank the staff at this organization. I don't think I've ever worked for... Can you hear me in the back? Okay. I don't think I've ever dealt with a staff so stunningly sunny and willing to help and smart. And anyway, I... I think it's just wonderful. It, we're really, I'm really chuffed at the staff here. Thank you to the faculty who let me sit in on four different courses today. They were wonderful. And thanks to all of you. I mean, this is, this is, this is punishing. I, I know you've been here for nine hours already, at least, and to uh, sit for another seven hours for, for lecture. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll, try, we'll try to do it in six. Um, <laughs> Thank, you know, it's such an honor to address the Rear Book School in this rarefied world of Jefferson and the University of Virginia, and amongst all of you, I mean, your fellow collectors and your librarians and your artisans and your, I mean, we all share this not-so-love of books, and it's wonderful to be in such a crowd. So thanks for coming. What we're going to do tonight, <laughs> my talk is called The Funhouse Mirror, Reflecting on Books Collecting in Chicago History. I want to talk about what, what, but, what, what buttons I put, you know, what, what buttons push me, actually. What makes um, a collector tick? And I'm going to try to tell you that. I don't know if I'll succeed, but I'm certainly going to try. Everything you're going to see tonight the pictures, the images, are things from my collection. Um, with that said, after the first few slides, every slide will have a date in the upper right, and that's to help you keep track of where we are. I have to tell you that this is, you will never have heard a history like this before, and hopefully will never again. It's totally distorted. That's hence the Funhouse Mirror. I'm, I'm ignoring things that I don't want to talk about. I'm exaggerating things that I do want to talk about. All hooked on Chicago history. In other words, I'm giving you a sort of a bogus history of Chicago so that I can talk about the things that I want to talk about with you this evening. Every once in a while, you'll see an asterisk in the lower right of the slide. That means that the object that I'm talking about is here on these three tables in the front. And you're welcome to come up and look. Before we start the history, I want to just go through a few slides of what I collect. Printed material is the basis of the library, and I think that's probably true for almost everybody in the room, probably everybody. Here's an example of a book. This is a, a 1937 book. We're gonna, I'll, I'm gonna, I'll come back to this later. I try to get books in the best condition I possibly can. You will see that this dust jacket is a tiny bit tattered. It's not, it's not absolutely the finest dust jacket. It is, however, the finest dust jacket that I think exists of this book. It's, this book is the first edition, first printing of this book is extremely hard to find. Tom, are you here? Yeah. Can you find me one? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> if you can find a better one, I'd be thrilled. But um, that's why I'm showing you. Oh, I, uh, pamphlets. These are all printed, and by nature, printed things tend to be not, not to be unique. I mean, they're in multiples. That's the nature of the bees. Magazines. This is the first edition of Playboy, which came out in 1953. You'll notice it's undated, because Hefner didn't know if there would be a second one. <laughs> Sheet music, 1922. This was... This has been recorded many, many times, most popularly by Frank Sinatra. Maps, views, 
ephemera, things that were, were not really meant to be kept. This is a, the Midwest premiere of Gertrude Stein's Four Saints and Three Acts, an opera that she came from Paris to Chicago to see in 1934. Posters, photographs, and then I also collect things that are not printed. And they tend to be unique. They tend to be one-offs. On the left is a autograph letter signed, hence ALS. That's, that's what it is in the, in the biz. We're going to come back to this. On the right, a type letter signed, or TLS, from 1931. It's a letter from Emma Goldman, an anarchist to her lover in Chicago, who's Ben Reitman, who was a, a doctor who treated venereal disease. And it's, it's a really interesting, the, the content of the letter is really interesting. She um, wants him to get her new book and see how, how it turned out. I also collect objects. This is the wallet of a corrupt mayor <laughs> and his business card. The death mask of one of America's most notorious outlaws, John Dillinger. And with that, we're going to start the history. I'm sorry, we're not, not I'm sorry. I, um, I just want to tell you how I take care of the books. I use a lot of mylar. All of the dust jackets are covered in mylar. And I also, does everybody know what encapsulation is? Anybody? Okay. Encapsulation is basically making a sandwich out of a valuable piece of paper between two pieces of high-grade plastic, we usually mylar. Uh, it's not lamination. Lamination, the plastic is stuck to the object. That would be horrible. That would ruin it. This is making a sandwich and sealing the edges. And the edges are sealed by um, a process that uses neither glue nor heat. So it's quite safe for the, for the object inside. It's done by ultrasound. And it's called encapsulation. Here's a... Um, you will see two examples of that. This is an example of encapsulation. For things that are not encapsulated, I try to keep them in acid-free folders, like this one. Lots of acid-free boxes. Everything I have is in my apartment. I keep the curtains closed during the day. I keep it dark, so I'm, I'm like a troglodyte. The curtains, come, <laughs> the curtains open at night. And I just thought I'd show you um, how I keep track of the, of the things. This is a database of my design. It's a simple database in FileMaker Pro. The first book that you saw, The Sister of the Road, the autobiography of Box for Hertha, this is my entry. And you'll see author, title, publishers, and quality publication plate. Are you, are you listening, Tom? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, publication year 1937, size, description, original plot with dust jacket. You can be sure that it's not price clipped. If it's price clipped, I would note that. So um, the, the source is Belerium. It's a uh, dealer in San Francisco. And I want to mention that dealers are my friend. I mean, collectors need dealers. They really, really help. They're, we're on the same side. I mean, I could not form a collection like I had without the help of dealers. And that's a two-way street. Dealers are constantly calling me, and I really like it. It's fun. Dealers call me and ask for, they, they want to know stuff if they don't know, and they ask if I have it, or if I know how much it should be, or is it common, or you know, things like that. So it really is a two-way street. But the source can also be book fairs, a book fair. Lots of things come off the web. Um, other collectors, that article that Michael told you about is, opened the floodgates. A lot of people started sending me stuff. It was really fun, and it still happens. People send me, oh, you're, you collect Chicago stuff. This was uh, my, that, that's how I got the wallet of the mayor, by the way. The, the uh, grand niece said, oh, you, you can have it. Um, the date I purchased it, the cost, and then a description. I, I don't know if you can read it. I don't think I'll take time to read it, but there's a the bibliographers in the room might be critical. I'd be curious to know what you think. Okay, now we're going to start the history. 
I'm starting the history in 1803. There were, at the beginning of the 19th century, there, were, there was literally a handful of people in Chicago. I mean, about five. In 1800, there were about f between five and ten people. In 1803, the young republic of the United States, the United States of America, um, built a fort where the Chicago River meets Lake Michigan. And it was called Fort Dearborn after the Secretary of War in Washington appointed by Thomas Jefferson, very important guy here. So we're talking, this is definitely the Jeffersonian era. Uh, Henry Dearborn, as I say, was Secretary of War, we now call that Secretary of Defense. There are not many pictures of the first Fort Dearborn. I just thought it'd be fun to show you a souvenir sheet published by the United States Postal Service in 1933 for the Century of Progress ex exhibition showing the first Fort Dearborn. The first Fort Dearborn was destroyed in the War of 1812, and the second one was built in 1816, and that's the one you almost always see depicted. Now, let's go back to Henry Dearborn. This is a letter. It's hard to read, but it says, The Honorable H. Dearborn, Secretary of War, on one side of the paper. And on the other side is this letter. So this is a letter from Charles Chouette, who was the Indian agent at Fort Dearborn, to his boss, Henry Dearborn, the Secretary of War in Washington, after whom the fort was named. I mean, this is sort of neat. And this is dated July 13th, 1808. So this is from Fort Dearborn. This, this is like a I mean, this is almost prehistory for Chicago. But it's not the original letter. Think of this as an 1808 Xerox. They didn't have Xerox, they didn't have carbon paper, but the translator at the fort, a guy by the name of John Lane, copied the letter. That's how you made a copy. You had somebody, you had one of your one of your servants copy it for you. And this is a copy of the original. You see it says that in the hand of John Lillian, who himself is a very interesting guy. He was half Indian. In the letter, Jouette asks of Henry Dearborn, the Indian blacksmith has informed me that he cannot continue in service without an addition of $10 per month to his compensation. MacDonald is, an is an industrious faithful man, and his services are highly important. Well, eight and a half months later, not having gotten an answer, Jouette writes again. And in this, but this time it's in Jouette's hand. This is not John Maling. This is the original Jouette letter. And he says, the enclosed is the copy of a letter I addressed to you in July last. <laughs> Presuming from never having been honored with an answer that it never reached you, the enclosed is transmitted. We happen to know the other side of the correspondence, which survives in Washington. And this is a book of the Territorial Papers of the United States. This is the Illinois edition from 1948. And I will read you Henry Dearborn's answer. Jouette, sir, your letter of the 1st April last, enclosing a copy of one to this department of 13th July, 1808, not found. There's a footnote. Not found. <laughs> Has been received. You will please to discharge McDonald from the service and in the future have all the Indian blacksmith work done by the artificers of the garrison to whom you will pay 10 cents and one gill of whiskey each per day on account of the Indian department and, and so on. So not only did the poor McDonald not get his raise, he was fired. <laughs> This is, you saw this briefly before, this is a view of Chicago in 1833, printed in 1867, published in 1867 by Rufus Blanchard. This is important because anything created in Chicago, a letter, uh, anything printed, 
and in sculpture, I mean artwork, anything that was happened in Chicago before October 8th, 1871 is quite collectible and why? Fire. Fire. These things tended to be on paper, even if there wasn't on paper. I mean, everything was destroyed between October 8th and October 10th, 1871. So if it's from Chicago, which this is, before that date in 1871, it's very interesting, this is called a pre-fire imprint. In order to survive, it had to have gone to New York or Philadelphia or Boston or Charlottesville or some, somewhere. It had to have left town in order to survive and then come back later. I draw your attention to the lower left. There's a, can you see it? This sort of a fuzzy cartouche, which I've blown up big. It's called Bird's Eye View of Chicago in 1823. What I'd like to impress upon you is how basic, how primitive, how rude. I mean, there was no, this was a nothing burger hamlet in 1823. Few houses, there's some Indians rowing about in canoes here. There's another canoe here. A, a miserable harbor. I mean, they called this a harbor. It was where the river, there wasn't really a harbor. Nothing burger. Almost, there were many cities that were much more important. And at this exactly contemporary with this, <laughs> is the rotunda next door. Think about it. I mean, Charlottesville was already a going concern. Virginia was a big old place with lots of people. Chicago was nothing. It was a prairie outpost. The first map of Chicago was printed in 1834. In Chicago, no, because it was, the place was so, so primitive, it didn't have, they couldn't do lithography there. There were no lithographers. To get a lithographed map like this, it had to be, this was done in New York. It was commissioned by John H. Kinsey, a name you should please remember. This shows the original village of Chicago, where outlined in red. And then below is a much larger section called the school section. The United States government gave early Western places extra land so that the taxes on the extra land would go to support the public school system. Nice idea. Eighteen thirty-five, the village of Chicago becomes a town. This is the charter of the town, and it is a Chicago imprint. It's thought to be the it's the third thing printed in Chicago. It's called the third imprint. There was one copy for, I mean, one known copy in the Streeter collection for many years, and then this one turned up. It's very exciting to have the second copy of this document. You'll see that it was signed in, in print by John H. Kinsey. That's the same guy who sponsored the map we just saw. Now, I have a question for you. What made this rude little hamlet Nothing Burger Hamlet, the fastest growing city in the world throughout the, from in the 19th century. Remember, it started with between five and ten people at the beginning of the century and ended up with a couple of million. What was the single biggest factor in that growth? Anybody? Water transportation. Water transportation is a good answer, but it's 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 tangential to what it's not. It's a, just a little. It's sort of the third reason. What, what's Louisiana the, Purchase. Hmm? Louisiana Purchase, was, that's also a good answer, but it's a, it's a little tangential to, there's, there's an approximate... Railroads. Railroads. railroads, yes. It was, it was definitely the railroads. Chicago's a railway hub, and it was the trains that brought this incredible growth, incredible wealth, incredible trade to Chicago. Now, here's a really hard... Trivia question. I don't really expect anybody to know, but I'm so does anybody know what the first railroad was in Chicago? Milwaukee Road. Milwaukee Road is a, that's a very good answer because it, 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 it's almost right because it became part of the Milwaukee Road. So I'll give part credit for that. <laughs> anybody else? Burlington is also a good guess. Okay, th this is hard. The answer is the Galena Chicago Union. Dinky little train. It never made it to Galena. <laughs> but this is the first, this is the charter for the first railroad 
in Chicago, a city that became big and great because of the railroads. So I'm really thrilled by this document. There, it is the only copy in Chicago, and I'll tell you that there are no copies in Chicago right now because the Chicago copy is here on the table. <laughs> There's, there is one other copy also from the Streeter collection, as I mentioned before, which is in Springfield. This turned up in Utica a few years ago in the attic of a family that had invested in the railroad, Utica, New York. Please note that the, the primitiveness of this document, look at the really sloppy, unworkmanlike trimming at the trim at the bottom. I mean, somebody went caterwampus with the scissors. I mean, it, it's, it's, a very, it, it's, a, it's a primitive document. It's printed in Chicago. It's 1836. And I think my favorite part, if you open it up, which it's open on the table there, I love the binding. It's an 1836 straight pin. I think this is the time to talk about object versus content. This is something like, I mean, you could say, sure, you can get the text of the Galena <coughs> and Chicago Union Railroad, Chicago's first, on the web. Not true. It's not on the web. So in fact, this is terribly interesting. If you want to read, if you want to read the document, you've got to read this one or the one in Springfield. It's not on the web. But anyway, but you could argue, well, you could put it on the web. What you can't put on the web is the object. And I think the object tells a story that you just don't get from the text. You look, you learn from this object how basic, I mean, this this came from a, a distant outpost in a young country with people who weren't terribly good at doing this. They were okay, but this, this, wasn't, this wasn't a really sophisticated publication. 1839, another fairly primitive document, but and quite interesting. The city had been incorporated in 37, so the city is now two years old. They're publishing the laws and ordinances. But what's really interesting about this little document is the inside, the printer had a few extra leaves at the back, and he printed the first directory of the city. So this is, um, and there are two copies of this as well. I don't want to tell, I mean, they're, it's sort of fun that you, you can sort of, that, it's here, you can look at it. I draw your attention to the first name, William Adams Shoe and Leather Dealer, 138 Lake Street, and another one down here, J.N. Ballastier, attorney and counselor at law, Clark Street. Well, this first guy in the directory, 1839, here's a letter from him, dated 1839. Here's his signature, your friend, etc., W.H. Adams. So this is the dude in the, the first directory and the dude. And he writes to a friend in Buffalo, Chicago cannot help but go ahead. It's destined to become the Queen City of the West. The Illinois-Michigan Canal is going ahead and will most likely be completed in the course of five or six years. She will then have a direct communication with the South and West. Southern and Western merchants will then seek the Chicago markets, market instead of St. Louis and New Orleans. It's amazingly prescient. I mean, the guy was right. He knew This guy knew in 1830, so the content of this letter is interesting. I mean, he, he, he felt that Chicago was going to be important. What part, what little part did he get wrong? Well, it, it wasn't. It wasn't real. It wasn't really the canal that did it. It was the railroads. The other guy on that first page of the directory was J. N. Ballastier. He's jo that would be Joseph. Joseph and Ballast. Jody. Jody. You and me. Uh, he had the gumption to publish a little pamphlet called "The Annals of Chicago." This is in 1840, three years after the city was set. I mean. The Anna, I mean, Rome, maybe. London, maybe. <laughs> Boston, maybe. But this is a three-year-old Hamlet in the annals. It's, it's, sort, of, it's, it's just sort of fun, that, how, how self-important they were. This is one of my favorite books. It's printed in Paris, 1842. Unprepossessing looking thing. I just wanted you to see, since I told you earlier about how I try to protect things, this is in a clamshell box that I had made. So keep the air out and dust. Now this book is so interesting to me because there's a plate in it. This is the plate 
It was printed in Paris. Now, this, this is, by the way, this is, notice how much more sophisticated this is than the Chicago press. I mean, this, this is a real book. This is the, they knew how to do this sort of thing in Paris in 1842. Michael, I did wash my hands. I want you to know. <laughs> this plate in, the, in this book, the lower left part, is the first printed picture of Chicago anywhere in the world. Do you get a sense of the youth of the city? I mean, 1842 is the first printed picture of the place. Well, there was, kind of, there was a lot of excitement in 1949. The publication of the Chicago Historical Society did an article on this picture, the earliest picture of Chicago. And they say in here, they named the book, made by Francis de Castelnau, Paris, 1844. Here's, the, here's a piece of the title page, M-D-C-C-C-X-L-I-I. That's definitely 1842. Well, somebody luckily noticed the problem, and I will read you something from the next issue of this magazine. Correction. We never could read Roman numerals. <laughs> In fact, in fact, we sometimes think that when Rome fell, it got just what it deserved. <laughs> the civilization that couldn't devise a better system of numbering than its cumbersome and unintelligible I's and X's and CL's didn't deserve to survive. <laughs> All of which is our feeble effort to excuse the inexcusable error we made in the summer 1949 issue of Chicago History when we assigned the date 1844 to Francis de Castelnau, Souvenir de la Mer de Noir. It should have been 1842. So, it's fun. Ladies and gentlemen, trouble comes in pairs. Very proudly, they reprinted the picture. Here's the picture. See it? The only thing is, the only thing is, that the picture they reproduced is Port Huron, Michigan. And this, this mistake has never been corrected. The wife of the dude we talked about earlier, John H. Kinsey, was a very good writer, smart woman, and women in Chicago is one of my interests, by the way. Juliet Kinsey wrote this very, very readable, wonderful book on the massacre of Chicago. That was the part of the War of 1812 when Fort Dearborn was destroyed. It's terrible history. It's all wrong, but it's a really good read. <laughs> It is most interesting to me because inside is the first map of Chicago printed in Chicago. This is a local map of Chicago, printed in Chicago, and that didn't happen until 1844. In it, she shows Fort Dearborn at the top, and then the route taken by the hapless folks who evacuated Fort Dearborn in August 1812. And the X marks the spot where they were all slaughtered. They weren't all slaughtered. Well over half. There were 150 or so who left the fort, and well over half were slaughtered in, a, in an ambush. The next year, in this directory, this is wonderful fold-out view. I did wash my hands again, just so you know. Uh, is the first picture of Chicago printed in Chicago? Now, this is a lantern slide. You know what a lantern slide is? It's, a, it's, it's like a slide that we, some of us who are old enough remember slides. Now everything's PowerPoint. But there were, used to be transparencies. This was a transparency that went in front of a big, very bright lantern, and, and you could shine the picture. It's a very beautiful picture, undated, unidentified. But if you look very, you can't see it. It's very hard to see. But the street, the street, light has on top of it directional po a directional post which indicates that this is State Street and this is Lake Street. So we know where it is. And I mean, this is definitely state, the corner of State and Lake. 
Front left is a post a pillar with some writing on it. I've blown that up for you. It's an ad for the Crosby, Crosby's Opera House. They're doing Oberon on Thursday evening, April 21st. By the way, it's blurry in the original. That's not entirely the fault of the... I mean, it's, it's very small. This is a huge blow-up of what you can read. And on Friday the 22nd, The Rose of Castile. The perpetual calendar reveals that Thursday the 21st and Friday the 22nd is, would be April 1859. So now we know the date. Sort of fun to figure out the date of the picture. But what does it say on the side of the building behind the post? The very post that revealed the, what the, the date of the picture has um, obscured what's on the building. Well, as luck would have it, the same year, a locally produced lithograph by two people called Jevni Almini of the exact same view. Now, this is an artist. This is done by an artist, not by a photographer. Shows this shows the wall of the building there, and if we superimpose the lithograph onto the photograph, you can see it says hardware, tinner stock, and carving tools, which is what it says here: hardware, tinner stock, carving tools. And above this staircase, buckskin gloves, wholesale, and mittens. You can just see the end of gloves, wholesale, and mittens. So now we know what's behind there. October 8th, 1871, you, you all called out, big fire. A publisher had the gumption on the next day, Monday the 9th, the fire went for three days, during the fire, to put out this extra of his newspaper talking about the great calamity of the age. It's amazing. I mean, think, I mean the place is burning, and, and the, newspaper, you know, the newspaper has to get out, so he does it. I'd like to draw your attention to the bottom of the left column and the top of the middle column. You know, this is what it says. The fire broke out on the corner of the Coven and 12th Streets at about 9 o'clock on Sunday evening, being caused by a cow kicking over a lamp in a stable in which a woman was milking. <laughs> Not true, but this sentence in this dumpy little paper is the beginning of the myth of Mrs. O'Leary. So you're seeing it right here. By the way, talk of object. I mean, that, that thing. I mean, that, that's the beginning of a leery man. Now, the myth caught on like crazy. <laughs> this, is a, this is a so-called carte de visite for uh, joking in carte de visite for Mrs. O'Leary. Dated 1871. It's clearly not a photograph. It's a drawing. But this came out immediately. I mean, there wasn't much of 1871 left after the fire went out. So this came out immediately. Look at this willful cow kicking over the lantern, kicking Mrs. O'Leary, away over on the right. There's a rat scampering into the ceiling, and a, oops, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. There's a rat scampering, and a cat with, with its um, art, back arched, and a pig scampering off to the left in fright. Look at Mrs. O'Leary. She's this hideous hag. <laughs> I mean, this is myth. Mrs. O'Leary was an attractive young woman. She wasn't in the barn. The reason there was um, rabid anti-Irish sentiment at the time, which is why they made a caricature of this woman, and, and they were anti-Irish. And so this is how they depicted her. Miraculously, the O'Leary house, not the barn, the barn was incinerated, the cow became hamburger, but the house next to the barn survived. And this is a picture, a stereograph of, it's up here, and you can, um, you can look through stereo thing and it should come out looking 3D. There's a bovine in front. I promise you, ladies and gentlemen, it's not the cow that was in the barn for a couple of reasons. One is that the cow burned. The other is that this is not a cow. It's a bull or a steer. Right after the World's Fair of 1893, a British cleric came to town. His name was William Stead. and wrote a book, If Christ Came to Chicago. He was horrified by what he found in Chicago. The, the, the sin and the depravity he called it a cesspool of infamy. And I mean, he was shocked, shocked at what he found in this horrible city. Well, this book, as readable as the massacre at Fort Dearborn was, this is unreadable. It's a horrible book. I mean, it's 
hard, tough, tough slogging, believe me. But it became an instant bestseller. Because right at the front is this map of all the whorehouses. <laughs> They're shown in red. <laughs> Most of you have probably read The Jungle in 7th or 8th grade by Upton Sinclair, a muckraking novel about the meatpacking industry in Chicago. This is a wonderful book. It came out in two first editions. Tom, I'm looking for better copies. I've never seen the dust jacket on this one. I have. Really? Well, you didn't call me. Um, what people don't know about this book, or most people don't know, is these are both first editions. They're identical, except that one has the device of the Socialist Party. You know that Sinclair was a socialist. They, these are both printed by Doubleday, but they're different. They're variants on the first edition. What most people don't know is that the year before, in 1905, the novel was serialized in a socialist journal in Kansas. This is the first. This is The Jungle, the story of Chicago by Upton Sinclair. It came out in three parts in this dinky cereal in Kansas. So it's interesting that there was a pretty... This, the, the book had appeared before it, the so-called first edition. Upstairs, one floor up, immediately above us, is a wonderful exhibit of bestsellers. And this is a picture of, this li of, of an exhibit in this library. I, I urge you during this week, sometime during this week to go look. Chicago Plan of 1909 was probably the most basic city planning document of America, certainly, uh, ever. My tie is from the Chicago Plan. It's an important book. I don't want to talk about it. I want to talk about its effect. This is by Dr. Werner Hegemann, who was the hotsy-totsy architectural historian of, the, of Europe of the time. He says, in German, of course, Thanks to its generally favorable location on the lake, and indeed in the heart of the North American continent, offering its still untold possibilities, Chicago will presumably grow in the future the same way it has up to now, and its population should climb 13 million to, to 13 million in the next 30 years. That's almost twice as big as London is today. That's the effect of the plan, the plan had on Europe. I mean, by the way, this book is hard to find. This, this was a many-year search. Now, how do you promulgate the plan? How do you popularize the plan? A very clever guy by the name of Walter Moody, who's an advertising executive, figured, no, don't, you know, don't, don't advertise it. Sell it to the kids. So he developed, he wrote this textbook for eighth graders in Chicago to learn about the Chicago plan. He called it Wacker's Manual. It had nothing to do with Wacker, but he was modest. I mean, he wrote the book, but he called it Wacker's Manual. You might wonder why there are seven of these on my shelf. The reason is obviously there are editions and printings of this thing, and I wanted, I'm a completionist. I certainly wanted them all. What's usually called, Tom, what's usually called the first edition of this book is this. Copyright 1911 by Walter D. Moody. But libraries all over, it's not a terribly uncommon book, but libraries all over the world have this slug, this, this date of 1912 on the title page. And this is commonly said to be the first edition. I was looking for 30 years to see if I could find one that had 1911 on the title page. And it exists, and it's in the room here. This is a truly rare book. I mean, the Chicago Public Library doesn't have it. I mean, they had this. The historical society doesn't have it. Nobody, nobody, I don't think even, I don't think anybody even knows about the existence of this book. I think what happened is that the pagination is so horrible. They they made a mistake in the binding that they probably just withdrew them quickly. No talk in Chicago would be complete without a little discussion of crime. This is here. This is a wonderful magazine, really lurid with pictures. Here's the St. Valentine's Day massacre in all its bloody gory, gory detail. Crime was the subject of much, much literature. Here are six books. I, I love the dust jackets. 
Yeah, just put some examples out of, of what you might find. We got back to John Dillinger. On July 22, 1934, there was a stakeout by what became the FBI and local police to capture John Dillinger, the bank robber. You, you know the story about the lady in red who, was, who helped identify him and so on. It was, he was shot dead outside the Biograph Theater. This is an original UPI photo of the occasion. And a couple of years ago, this dumb death mask came up at auction. And I wasn't there to buy it, but I couldn't help myself. I, I ended up owning it. Um, I wanted to see so creepy that the, the lady who wrote the article for the newspaper said, what do you think of it? I said, it's so creepy. And that, somehow that became the subhead, which I think is sort of fun. This is, the, this is a picture of the mask held by the perp, the guy who made it. It was made illicitly in the wall. This corpse was lying in the Cook County morgue. It's, it's really creepy. It really is creepy. But then you can look at this picture. In 1948, how, how many of you have flown to Chicago or through Chicago? I suspect everybody in the room. Yeah, okay. Your luggage tag, you probably have noticed, says ORD on it, which seems like a really strange abbreviation for O'Hare. Well, the D comes from an older name for that facility called Orchard Field. So Chicago Orchard is what morphed into O'Hare. In 1948, the city fathers knew that the existing airport, which is now called Midway, was woefully inadequate. And they, this was a great planning document. They, I think it's funny how they, were, they foresaw O'Hare. It doesn't look like that, of course. but. That's, this was their idea of building a new airport. It opened in 1959 and became the world's busiest. I'm terribly interested in the uh, social unrest. In 1968, Chicago boiled over. There was something called a police riot during the Democratic National Convention. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of students were getting tear gassed and hit over the head. It was, some, of, some of you in the room are probably old enough to remember it. It was very unpleasant. Um, this is just one of the, it's a really colorful document which is on the table here. The Chicago trial testimony of Allen Ginsberg, here floating on a cloud, a psychedelic cloud, the, the sour-faced, awful judge, Julius Hoffman, he really was an unpleasant dude and William Kunstler, the, the over-eager defense attorney. This is a poster for a fundraiser to defend the so-called conspiracy. The, the people who were the FBI was after for fomenting the riots of 1968 were called, were called conspirators. Well, in a wonderful act of co-option, they called themselves the conspiracy. So, I mean, the, the the so-called Chicago 8, later the Chicago 7. This is a fundraiser for the conspiracy. It's by R. Crumb, who's all the rage. I mean, he, he, was, a, he was popular then with hippies and, and the counterculture. Now, he's considered an old master. There's a, currently in Paris, there's this one-man show of R. Crumb. In 1992, some of you, most of you will probably remember there was a huge flood in Chicago. The Chicago River leaked, basically. They made a hole in the bottom of the Chicago River, and the river, billions of gallons of river water went into an old, uh, century-old tunnel system that was, was empty. And, of course, the water, water went down there right away. And, and we, so we had a flood under the city which threatened everything. It threatened the subway, it threatened the infra all, all the infrastructure, it threatened the electric lines. It was bad. This is a cartoon of April 13th in a tunnel under the Chicago River, a descendant of Mrs. O'Leary's cow follows her calling. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, I, you've been very brave. I think it's time. Thank you.
reaction is then, then we'll um, let people come and look at the materials. You are asked, please, 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 not to handle the materials. And then we'll uh, retire, and, and, and person will be available at the reception to answer more questions. But there might be one or two now that would be best answered in the committee of the poll. Let's go drink and then, and then we'll <laughs> 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 Yeah, I'm 